historic, historic House President and CEO. And I am really thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, for those of you who haven't yet had a chance to see our exhibition, uh, World War II in New York City, I think um, you'll find it very interesting. So I hope you do uh, find your way into the galleries immediately to my right. And of course, yesterday, we had an opening of our spectacular new Audubon's aviary, a whole um, enormous flock of birds, and they're on our second floor. So uh, please do visit both of those. And uh, also, I want to remind you that uh, Friday nights were pay as you wish, and we have a wonderful film series organized by my colleague Dale Gregory. And uh, so. Please do uh, have a look into that as well. And anyone who's not yet a member of the New York Historical Society, uh, I hope that you will join. It's very easy to do and right outside these doors. In fact, many of my colleagues will be available to sign you up. Today's program, New Frontiers of the 21st Century, includes what I know will be two fantastic talks with a short break in between. Uh, both of those talks include a question and answer session will ask you to approach standing microphones uh, to my left and to my right in the aisles. We ask you to do that so that the speaker can hear your question and so that everyone in the audience can hear your question as well. Uh, the program today is part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has allowed us to bring so many great writers and historians to this auditorium. I would also like to thank our partners in presenting this program, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who developed today's program in collaboration with our Vice President for Public Programs, Dale Gregory. And now it is my great pleasure to welcome Alan Luxemburg, the President of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing today's speakers. Mr. Luxemburg has served FPRI since 1976 when he was still a student at the University of Pennsylvania. And over the years, he has served in virtually every position within the organization before being named president in January 2012. In 1990, he founded FPRI's Walkman Center, which has been an outlet for FPRI's educational programming, serving over 500 schools in 46 states. As always, before we begin, I want to ask you to make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, it is my pleasure to welcome Alan Luxemburg. Well, we thank the uh, New York Historical Society for uh, helping us to organize today's event. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the Foreign Policy Research Institute, we are, who were founded uh, by Robert Strauss and Pei on the premise that a nation should think before it acts. Uh, Strauss and Pei is said to have introduced geopolitics into the American vocabulary, geopolitics being simply the study of history, culture, and geography to inform our understanding of contemporary international affairs. Uh, or as it was put by one of my colleagues, it's the study of the realities of the, of the mentalities of the localities. Um, our program today is the first of a three-part uh, program uh, on Old War's new threats. Uh, the next two in the series, the first Saturdays of April and May, deal with World War I, World War II, 
in the Revolutionary War. Today, we're dealing with new threats, uh, cyber war and potential conflict with China. Uh, I'm happy to introduce my colleague, uh, Lawrence Yusick, who is a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and co-director of our Center for the Study of Terrorism. Uh, Lawrence is a man of many hats. He's a uh, patent lawyer by day. He's uh, a founder and principal in several high-tech companies. He is a faculty member of the Hopkins University uh, Graduate School of Engineering. He is an inventor, holder of many patents. He, uh, let's see, what else is on his platter? He's a high school debate coach, and he has just started a nonprofit organization that um, tries to collect computer time, donated computer time, to develop molecules uh, to resist uh, rare diseases from all over the world. So you can see he has his finger in many pots, uh, but uh, he's really, his real claim to fame is his ability to explain complex phenomena in simple terms. So we've asked him today to talk about cyber war, and in particular, how the United States is vulnerable to cyber attacks. So please welcome Lawrence. Thank you, Alan, for that wonderful introduction, and good morning, everyone. For the next few minutes, what I hope to do is to illustrate both the nature of cyber war and how cyber war differs from conventional or what we call kinetic war and how it's similar and the ways in which we have responded and still have to respond and that's really the crux of the matter and so to turn the page back a little bit the first thing that we should know is that cyber war should not be a surprise to anyone Certainly, as long ago as 1999, we were told of something called an electronic Pearl Harbor. And our then Deputy Secretary of Defense pointed out that the target of this attack was unlikely to be our military assets directly. It was much more likely to be things in the private sector, commercial infrastructure, because after all, Attacking infrastructure is something that has been part of warfare for a very, very long time. And so, with this as a little bit of background, we should have seen what was coming. Unfortunately, we Americans are very good at many things, but being proactive about potential threats is not one of them. Now, if you want to understand cyber threat, this is how the Department of Defense lays it out. It's a very simple algorithm. You see, threat is a function of both the threat, the type of threat, the vulnerability of your systems, and the value or the consequences that they represent. And in each case, you have a response based on what you recognize in order to minimize your vulnerability, minimize your risk. Well, that seems simple enough. It seems like we ought to be able to do something there because there are lots of what we call pressure points that are built into these systems. The problem, however, is that we're dealing with extremely complex systems. The internet is the most complex system ever built by man. It far exceeds the complexity of the space shuttle, which is the next most complex engineering system. 
And so what you're looking at is this complex of threats, cyber crime, cyber war, cyber spying. The difficulty, of course, is that they're not unique. They're not separate. All of these threats share commonalities. They all share modalities of attack. They all share the same vulnerabilities. They simply seek different goals. In the case of crime, the goal is obviously money. That's pretty simple. In the case of cyber espionage, the goal is information, is data. And in the case of cyber war or cyber terrorism, the goal is to disrupt the victim. Not to destroy, not to utterly kill, not to wipe them off the face of the earth, just to disrupt how they do business and how they live their lives in order to distract them, in order that someone who is trying to disrupt can achieve his or their goals and objectives. You see, one of the things that's very true about cyber is that it's not all about us as much as we might think it would be nice to be. These are the terminologies, these are the threats. Now, in order to think about the strategic positioning of cyber war, we have to get out of the Cold War mindset. The Cold War mindset was mad, quite literally, mutually assured destruction. It was the idea that even though the Soviets might have a first strike capability, we would retain enough of a counterattack capability to vaporize the entire Soviet Union. And for more than 50 years, this worked. It was pretty good. And in fact, our internet and its structure grew out of this idea of MAD. Because the internet itself was designed to be a self-healing, self-correcting network. That you could take out a piece of it with a nuclear strike, and the net itself would automatically reconfigure and figure out how to reconnect everything. Gee, wouldn't it be nice if that happened when the power went out? Anyway, the strategic stance today, however, in our multipolar world, is a little less clear. In fact, we say at FPRI that it's as clear as mud. Multilateral, unconstrained disruption. Multilateral because it involves both state and non-state actors. Unconstrained because there is no constraint placed on those actors in terms of attacking only uniform military. They can attack and will attack any target they care. And disruption because, again, their goal is not utter destruction. It's just enough disruption so that they can achieve their goals, their ends. And given that, and given the constraints that we face, everything seems to be, of course, as clear as mud. Now, if we look at infrastructural warfare, it's, of course, nothing new, after all. During World War II, when the Allies developed daylight precision bombing, the very first thing they went after was the ball bearing factories at Schweinfurt. Ball bearing factories, why? Well, because if you attack a ball bearing factory successfully, it becomes impossible for the enemy to build all those nice BMW engines that power its fighters, its bombers, its tanks, and so forth. And so attacking something that is key infrastructure is old. During the wars in Serbia and Bosnia, we use these little things, these little canister munitions. What they do is explode in the air, many, many of them, dispersing tiny little carbon fibers, some of them tens of yards long, some of them as short 
as a small hair. But they're all very thin, and they settle on things like power lines, shorting them out and blacking out the lights. They're sucked into the air intakes, the cooling fan intakes of things like computers, and they short out the innards of the computers. So this is infrastructural warfare specifically against the electrical grid. Now the question is, could something like that happen here in, let's say, New York City? Well, certainly in 2003 on an August steamy afternoon, we might have believed that it was possible. Because you may remember that the city blacked out, that most of the eastern United States blacked out. And 44 minutes after that blackout occurred, the White House and the New York governor's office reassured us through the press, at least any of us who could listen to what was going on, because after all, the power was out and the TV stations were off the air. But they reassured us, it's OK. This is not terrorism. Now, never mind that it took the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission 17 months to figure out what had actually caused this blackout. Never mind that the full report was only classified 19, only declassified 19 months ago. And never mind that they blamed a sagging power line in eastern Ohio, which had touched a tree and started something called a cascading failure, which most of the electrical utilities had assured me and my colleagues at FPRI was a physical impossibility when we pointed it out before 2003. And never mind that the real reason for the blackout, despite the fact that the power line had touched the tree, is that that afternoon, almost all of the computer systems monitoring the power grid were completely bogged down with something called the blaster worm, which was spreading through all of these computer systems because somebody felt that it was vitally important to connect our infrastructure to the internet. It's okay, it wasn't terrorism. We should all feel better. Now, the only reason that New York blacked out and Philadelphia didn't, by the way, is that there is a grid operator in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, about four miles from my home, called the PJM Interconnect. And sitting at a console that afternoon was a 26-year-old engineer. And that 26-year-old engineer saw his screens go black. He knew something was wrong. He didn't really know what was going on. But he had 15 seconds to make a career-ending decision. You see, he could choose to pull the switch, isolating northern Pennsylvania and the rest of the grid north of there from the southern part of the grid stretching all the way down to South Carolina and all the way west of the Mississippi. If he made the right choice, if in fact there was a cascading failure, he saved Philadelphia and South from a devastating blackout. If he made the wrong choice, obviously he was fired, like that. And without any information acting on instinct, this young man pulled the switch. He made the right choice. Now, despite saving all of that part of the grid, the estimated cost of the blackout was more than $12 billion. Not bad for one day's work. Now, lest you think that this is limited to civilian infrastructure, let's remember that the Israelis developed cyber war to a fine art in something called Operation Orchard. You see, the North Koreans, who are not our friends, 
gave the Syrians, who are not necessarily our friends, a nuclear reactor, which they proceeded to build. And that's a satellite photograph of it. And one fine afternoon, if the Syrian air defense people had bothered looking out the window instead of at their computer screens, they would have seen a flight of Israeli fighter bombers fly by at low altitude. But they didn't look out the window. Instead, they focused on those wonderful Russian-built anti-aircraft <laughs> missile system screens, which the Israelis had thoughtfully placed a worm to jam. And so just like the Tom Cruise movies where they put the photograph up in front of the camera and it looks fine, the Syrians didn't see the Israelis do that. Cyber war is real. It's being exploited. It is a fifth domain of warfare. Now the problem, of course, is that we don't have good words to talk about cyber war. In fact, the Deputy Secretary of Defense tells us there's no agreed on definition. That's one of our first problems. We don't know what a cyber attack is. We don't have any good way to discuss it. But there's a bigger problem, and that bigger problem is there's also no current effective defense against cyber attack. There's no deterrence. You can't play the mad game because the mad game requires that you know the return address on that missile that just came at you. And in the cyber domain, return addresses are a problem. We have failure to attribute the attack, a fundamental difficulty. Now, we should have seen all of this coming because two colonels in the People Liberation Army in China thoughtfully laid it all out for us in this book, Unrestricted Warfare. You can buy your own copy on Amazon. It's a very good translation. And in this book, the colonels talked about the military doctrines that would be used by the Chinese military if it came to a live conflict with the United States. They specifically talked about how far the United States was ahead in cyber terms and also in its reliance on computers and networks and what they would do about it. And they laid out all of the tools and techniques they might use. And they really based this whole idea on one of our military doctrines, this MOOTW, military operations other than war. And they said, this is what we would do. Now, it's clear that it's not just what they would do, it's what they were and are doing. Our government, in response, has decided that it's necessary to protect our critical infrastructure. And these are the things that our government says are the critical infrastructure of our country. And I think you'd agree that most of them are pretty good. Banking and finance, transportation, our power grid, these are all critical and should be protected. Now, I'm not so sure that this one, the National Monuments and Icons, belongs in that list. Because where we live in Philadelphia, the National Monument and Icon is the Liberty Bell. And the method that the government uses to protect it is that they surround it with bicycle racks. And they put a park ranger outside the bicycle rack. And quite facetiously, I ask you to think about what would have happened on September 11th had the World Trade Center been surrounded by bicycle racks and guarded by park rangers. More than that, I'm not sure that the late, great Osama 
really knew that the Liberty Bell was that important to us and worthy of his attention. But be that as it may, the government has focused tremendous resource on protecting this critical infrastructure. The difficulty, of course, is that this is a definition from a government eye view, and it's not a dynamic definition. So what then is perhaps critical, but not within the government's purview or protection? Well, here are a few. Electronic chip and systems manufacturing. You see, we've successfully outsourced almost all chip manufacturing to the Far East. These chips are phenomenally complex. There's more power in your iPhone than in all of the computers that it takes to run the space shuttle. Your iPhone is, by most accounts, something like 100 million times more powerful than the computer that landed the men on the moon. And yet, that chip is so complex that we are not able to figure out everything that might be in there. We do know that we have found chips shipped in from China, destined for use in our missile systems, which contain what are called backdoors, or logic bombs. Things that have been put in there at the manufacturing stage which can disable those chips or make them malfunction in predictable ways. And that's a problem. Healthcare systems. If you've been to a hospital, a doctor's office, or a clinic recently, you know that there are lots and lots of computers there. And lots of machines that seem to beep as if you were behind the counter at McDonald's, frankly. All of those things rely on very complex computers and networks, and they're not considered critical as part of our infrastructure. Enterprise software. This is the very, very complex big software that runs, by most counts, 92% of the Fortune 2000. It runs everything in the business, and yet this software that's so critical to our economy and the global economy is not considered to be critical infrastructure. Pharmaceutical production and distribution. Between New York and Philadelphia, over 85% of the pharmaceuticals used in our country and in a great rest of the world are produced and distributed. Imagine a disruption in that supply chain, and yet, not critical. And finally, IP version 6. IP version 6 is a new addressing scheme for devices connected to the internet. Now, mo many of you may be familiar with your internet address, and that's usually in the form of four numbers separated by periods. It looks like 192.72.3.252. And that's your address on the internet. The problem is that that was the version 4 address, and we ran out of those addresses, just like we ran out of area codes some time ago. And so we started creating new addresses. IP version 5 was just a proposal, so we jumped right over to IP version 6, which is now being implemented on the internet. And the problem with IP version 6 is that in order to make our internet continue to function during the transition, we had to make the older devices capable of just passing through the new addresses. And this can be used nefariously because information that is encoded in the version 6 format flows through the older devices without their being aware of it.
in very much the same way that there are radio and television programs flowing through your body right this very moment being broadcast into this room, but you're unaware of them unless you've got a loose filling. Finally, embedded system and software. Control systems. These are the little tiny computers that control everything in our lives. They control traffic lights. They control elevators. They control heating and air conditioning. They control refineries and chemical facilities. They control just about all of the air traffic control system, the subway system, you name it. And these computers were invented during the 1980s before anyone gave a hoot about security. The problem with these systems is that they are very, very difficult to refit to be secure because they involve some critical timing which would be thrown off if we just added extra layers of security on top of these systems. Again, not critical infrastructure as far as the federal government is concerned. Now, we know these embedded control systems by an acronym, SCADA, Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition Systems. And back in 2003, my colleague Stephen Gale and I looked at this problem, determined that this was a vast vulnerability, and wrote and disseminated a report talking about it, and we recommended that we should do something, and quickly. It turns out that in most of the world, nothing was done, but as you'll see, some people were listening. The worry about these systems is not that people can blow them up. Everybody thinks, gee, a cyber attack, things would blow up, the computers would go down, the screens would go dark, but that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that control systems can be made to intentionally malfunction. That data can be intentionally altered without our knowing about it. And that things will go very wrong and we won't know why. So, the news is full of cyber attacks. And it seems today that the biggest culprit is our friends in China. According to a report released just in the last two weeks by Mandiant Security, a vast majority of Chinese cyber attacks are coming out of that building in Shanghai and are being operated by a unit of the People's Liberation Army, which has attacked over a thousand servers using 849 different source addresses so that it's not really possible to know when an attack is coming from them and when it isn't. We know that one victim of such an attack was accessed for almost five years, and that in one case, 6.5 terabytes of data was stolen. That's one-third of the Library of Congress. And when we say stolen, that data was taken directly off the victim's network, and the victim didn't have a clue, didn't see the lights flashing at night. Now this cyber attack was overwhelmingly focused on the United States as the target. Almost all of it was. A few on some of our allies, but mostly here. This is what was targeted, and I dare you to find something that's critical infrastructure that's not on this list. And what was taken, 
technology blueprints, testing data, business plans and pricing documents, the kinds of things that you would do if you were engaged not simply in warfare, but in economic warfare. And according to some estimates, the Chinese exfiltration of data and the theft of intellectual property has cost this country over $100 billion and perhaps been as much as a half of 1% drag on GDP growth. That's really significant. In response, the Ministry of Defense said this, the report lacks technical proof. After all, you didn't catch us red-handed, you just tied these internet addresses back to that building that happens to be run by the People's Liberation Army. But more importantly, they said, there is no internationally clear unified definition of what consists of a hacking attack. In other words, yeah, we did it. There's just no law against it. And then they went on to say, what we're doing is the everyday gathering of online information. The everyday gathering. In other words, if you guys don't think enough of your information and systems to lock them up, we'll come read them like an open book. They blame the victim. Now, the last thing that the Chinese said was, who are you guys to talk? What were they talking about? Well, they were talking about Stuxnet, something that you've undoubtedly read about in the New York Times until you're sick about hearing of it. Stuxnet is the US government reaching out to touch someone. In this case, to touch Mr. Ahmadinejad and his buddies and the nuclear enrichment program being carried on in secret by Iran. Stuxnet started under President Bush but was spread up by, sped up by President Obama and was a federal project codenamed Olympic Games. Our National Security Agency developed part of it and the Israeli Defense Forces Unit 8200 developed the other part of it. Unit 8200 was a cyber war unit started by General Amos Yadlin, whose other claim to fame is that he led the famous air attack on the Osirak Iraq, Iraq reactor that destroyed the Iraqi nuclear program. And General Yadlin told me that it was very simple to start 8200. All he had to do was recruit a bunch of people who were not yet 25 years of age, and they were more than happy to play the video games. Stuxnet started out in life as a worm that was on the internet that was originally spread by these little USB memory sticks, these thumb drives that you can buy all over and that people try to give you. And as we'll talk about later, this is a very dangerous technology. But Stuxnet also started with some equipment that the Iranians needed but was embargoed. And that was a set of industrial controllers, SCADA controllers. In this case, one specifically made by the Siemens company. And the Iranians went out and bought those on the black market in Taiwan from companies that may or may not have been front companies for a certain three-letter United States agency, which may or may not have contained some extra little computer code buried deep inside them. But in any event, 
those pieces of equipment acted like beacons. Once they were installed and turned on, they started phoning home and saying, here we are, this is where we're being used. Some of them were being used in oil refineries and some of them were being used when our satellites flew over the coordinates. They didn't see anything. They didn't see any buildings. And we figured out pretty quickly that's because the Iranians had buried them 300 feet underground. This attack was so nefarious that it used two security certificates to assure the computer systems that it was genuine and not a threat, and four so-called zero-day attacks. Now, a zero-day attack is a vulnerability in a system that's never been documented before. They are the holy grail of a hacker. If you can discover a zero-day attack, you can sell it on the black market for $100,000 and prior to Stuxnet, we had never seen an attack that used more than one zero day because they're so rare and valuable. But Stuxnet used four separate ones. The guys who built it really wanted to make sure that it succeeded. And it was built to specifically target the uranium enrichment facility at Natanz. How did it do that? Well, it infects, it searches for systems it's capable of updating itself, and then it compromises those systems by worming its way through printers, through networks, through everything that it finds, until it can control the industrial controller system, and then it can do its destructive work. Now, it's programmed to only attack a specific kind of system. And I won't bore you with all the details, but if you're not running a Siemens Cymatic 6ES7315-2 PLC, and it's not connected by a certain set of wires called a profi bus to these communications processors, and it's not driving at least 33 frequency converter drives from a company in Finland or one in Iran, well, Stuxnet just figures you're not any interest, and it destroys itself. But if you are, if you match that fingerprint that it knows, it goes to work. And what it does is that every 15 minutes, it tries to find the industrial controller that controls the speed of those spinning centrifuges that are busy refining uranium hexafluoride. And as it tries to find them and when it locates one, it injects some code into that controller itself. It invades the SCADA system. But first, it takes the legitimate code that was in that controller and it saves it away in a back corner of memory and it injects a routine that I call the nobody in here but us chickens routine. You see, when an operator queries the infected controller and says, tell me what you're doing, that routine fetches back the original code and uploads it to the operator as if to say, nobody in here but us chickens, boss. And it continues to run the infected routine. Now, once it's infected the controller, it sits there and it watches. And it watches for the speed of that centrifuge to get into the range of between 810 and 1201 revolutions per minute. Once it gets into that range, it then goes to sleep and waits for about 13 days. Why? 
because refining uranium is an incredibly difficult and slow process. It goes on through a cascade of centrifuges, as many as 32 in a row, where the results of one spin are put into the next centrifuge and further refined and further. This takes months. And so it just waits. It's as if you're baking a batch of cookies, and instead of coming along and spitting in the bowl right away, I wait till you've actually put in the chocolate chips and are ready to put them in the oven. Then I come and spit in the bowl. That's what this does. After it waits, it then sets the speed of the centrifuge to over 1,400 revolutions per minute, and after a short delay, puts the brakes on immediately and drops that speed to two revolutions per minute, and then it repeats for a while, and when it finishes that, it goes back to sleep. Now what happens as a result of that? Well, we know from our experimentation with these same P1 type centrifuges, they were called P1 because they came from the AQ Khan network in Pakistan, and we got a hold of them, the United States got a hold of them, when our former enemy, then better friend, then not so good friend again, Mr. Gaddafi, decided to kill off his nuclear program and handed us all of the equipment. So we installed these things at Oak Ridge so that we could test them. And we know that at about 1400, these centrifuges get pretty rickety and tear themselves apart. They literally destroy themselves in response to a simple software command. But we also know that if they don't do that, if you slam on the brakes all of a sudden, two things happen. The first is that the bearing that supports the centrifuge fails. It can't take the strain. And the second is that the safety systems involved go into effect and they immediately use a vacuum to suck all of the uranium hexafluoride gas out of the centrifuge and throw it away. Just like you would do with that bowl full of cookie dough. And so we disrupt the entire system this way. So successfully that at one point the Iranians had more than 10,000 centrifuges spinning and we managed to drop that number to about one-third. The estimates are that this program probably slowed the Iranian effort down between three and five years. So what comes next? Well, one of the early things that Stuxnet did out there on the network was create these maps of every computer network that it infected telling us exactly what was connected and in what order to that little industrial network. And then it phoned home to a website, in one in Denmark and one in Indonesia, and reported that information. So somewhere, the Israelis and we have digital fingerprints of just about every industrial facility, not only in Iran, but all over the world. And that digital fingerprint can be used in the same way that we targeted the Natanz facility to target any fingerprinted facility, such that this cyber weapon is like a guided missile that has your name on it. It won't touch any other system in the world. It can be programmed that specifically. And secondly, because the Stuxnet code leaked out onto the network and has been analyzed and published, we know that other people will be able to clone it and use it for their own purposes. And in fact, that's exactly what's been done. 
You see, in October 2011, we found a relative of Stuxnet called UQ out there on the internet. It uses some of the Stuxnet code, and its purpose is to find and then steal information from computer networks. And you can see where we have found it, where it has spread. It also has the ability to dynamically update itself and to change its capacity and its character as Stuxnet did as well. And a far bigger threat and a far bigger piece of code is something called Flame or Skywiper. And Flame is a directed attack cyber weapon which is incredibly complex, over 20 megabytes of code. It uses over 80 what are called command and control or C2 servers to direct its attacks and to receive information. It's specifically programmed to evade and disable over 263 different antivirus programs. So much so that it can infect a computer, disable the antivirus program, keep the antivirus program from updating itself, and then fool the antivirus program into thinking it's already been updated and everything is fine. And Flame has the ability on Windows systems to steal information as well as to turn on the microphone and listen to what's going on in the room around the computer without your knowing about it, and to record your Skype calls and export that information. It also, if it is tampered with, has something called a kill module. And the kill module is the most effective piece of code we've ever seen for completely destroying a computer. It goes in and overwrites the critical low-level information on the hard drive in such a way that the hard drive cannot be resurrected and has to be trashed. And first, it destroys any trace of itself, so it's very hard to study exactly how it works. Now, the Iranians discovered Stuxnet. They finally figured out why their centrifuges were failing. They put out a call to the hacker world looking for contract hackers who would come and help remove the Stuxnet virus from their systems and help them defend against it. They offered a half a million dollars. Now, right after that offer went out on the internet, some unnamed individual went on the internet and said, we think that your life is probably worth more than half a million dollars. Think twice before taking the offer. And of course, nobody that we know of took the offer. But then, once the Iranians had said they knew about it and they'd fixed their systems, one late night around 3 a.m. in July of 2012, when the Iranians had been so desperate that they put their engineers on folding chairs in those centrifuge halls, 300 feet underground, to watch what was going on, to make sure that nothing untoward was happening with their systems, at 3 in the morning, all of the computers in the entire facility did this. For those of you who are not movie buffs, that's ACDC's Thunderstruck, and it was one of the themes of the Iron Man movies. This was somebody's way of telling the Iranians, 
dudes, you don't even know what you don't know. So there is some humor in war. Now, we should have expected some blowback, of course. And the blowback has happened in the form of something called Shamoon. Shamoon initiated an attack on August 16, 2012 at Saudi Aramco, the largest oil company in the world. It was introduced by a trusted insider and scheduled to attack on a Muslim holiday when no one would be in the offices. And it specifically steals information and then erases computers in such a way that it destroyed the hard drives in 30,000 computers. Saudi Aramco was offline for about two weeks while they scrambled to replace all the hard drives and rebuild all the systems. It then later struck in Qatar at Razgas. This is the kind of thing that we would see as blowback attack, and it is happening. And we know that our major banking institutions and some in Western Europe have been attacked by a group from Iran known as the Qassam Cyber Fighters. And they use a distributed denial of service attack, but a very potent one, because a web server that sits out on the internet is just an obedient servant. You ask it for information, and it says, here's your information. And it turns out that if you ask it too often and too quickly, you saturate the system and it either refuses to answer any more requests or utterly fails and crashes. And the Qassam cyber fighters use a new hacker toolkit that they downloaded for free from the internet. And that hacker toolkit is known by the technical name, it's okay, no problem, bro. <laughs> but it is capable of saturating a network at 70 gigabits per second. That is so fast that even the largest bank systems in the world crush under that weight of request. And so some of these banks have truly had tremendous difficulty, their websites failing, difficulty getting back online, and so forth. Now, lest you think that hacking is an arcane art and is difficult to do, all you have to do is type a few search terms into Google, and you too can be what we call a script kitty. A script kitty is somebody who doesn't know very much, who just takes a hacker tool and decides to throw it out there on the internet for fun or profit. So I typed a couple of words in and got to a website in Turkey. And when you go to the website, this is what you see. Now it looks like these guys are probably security consultants. But once you click on their page, what you find out is that they're selling toolkits which allow you to hack into other people's Windows computers. And by selling, I mean a $10 donation anonymously through PayPal. And you can customize these toolkits in any way you want. Now, lest you think this is an isolated thing and only in Turkey, well, all you have to do is look up the Nuclear Winter Crew. These guys have a pretty professional website. And they have these things that they will give away for free 
or more sophisticated ones you can pay for. And by the way, this thing called a RAT, a RAT is a remote access tool. It means that if you use this software and infect someone's computer, you can actually remote control it. You can watch what they're doing on their screen. You can see what they type in as they access their banking system, including the password. You see the little dots. These guys see the actual thing you're typing. This is for real. And as if that weren't enough to deal with, we also have to deal with hacktivism, or what's known as cyber anarchy. Groups that exist to right the wrongs that they see in the world. Groups with wonderful names, like Anonymous, or Law, or my favorite, the Cult of the Dead Cow. These guys are crusaders on the internet. These guys are looking at what's wrong with the world, and wherever they see a wrong, they are using the internet and hacking techniques to try to fix it, or at least so they think. Our government classifies them as cyber criminals of the highest order. And it's not just that they hack quietly, they have a public face. So when they hacked the CIA, the very next day they gave us this. Now, Anonymous posted that online. The voice you're hearing is completely computer synthesized, and this particular video was bounced through 91 different servers in 40 countries before it finally landed in public. Even our best people can't figure out where it came from. So where are we? Well, this is the depressing part of the talk. <laughs> you see, 95% of the computer systems and networks upon which we build our lifestyle are not owned or run by the government. They're in the private sector. And most of them run Windows, Microsoft Windows, which as Google figured out after being hacked about 18 months ago, can't be secured for love or money. Now that's less true of the very latest version of Windows, Windows 8, but as to earlier versions, sadly, it's completely true. We know that 40% of the Windows computers in the world are running pirated software. And about nine years ago, Microsoft decided that if you're going to run pirated software, it's not going to give you security updates. So these computers are completely open and unprotected. We also know that Windows XP Service Pack 2 is not yet, is, is no longer supported, but we know that lots of people still use it. And by no longer supported, that means no security updates, no patches. 
We know that Microsoft has said that support for the Service Pack 3 and Office 2003, which are by far the most prevalent systems in use in business around the world, that support will end soon, a little more than a year from now. We know that there are over 68 million unique what are called malware files. Malware is worm, virus, and other ill-intentioned software. And 17% of all the real legitimate PCs out there still have no antivirus software at all. This is like knowing that the flu epidemic is coming and having 57% of your population utterly refuse to get vaccinated. We know that malware is being released at increasing rates. That's the chart of malware releases over the last few years. And don't forget that although you can patch a desktop computer, these SCADA embedded systems can't be patched. They have to be completely replaced for the most part. So imagine the response that I would get from Mayor Bloomberg when I tell him that all of the systems that control traffic lights and the MTA need to be pulled out by the roots and replaced at a cost of about $11 billion in order to secure the infrastructure of the city. I don't think he'd be happy. Lest you think that we have learned our lessons and taken these control systems off the internet, here's a map of the control systems, the SCADA systems, on our internet as of December. They're still out there and accessible, still connected to the internet. Now, lots of people have said, can't we just pull the plug? Can't we just isolate these things completely and make them secure? Well, here's a, le a recent headline. Some of the most isolated computers in the world exist on offshore oil platforms. After all, they don't have any wires connecting them. They're out of cell range. Sometimes they've got a satellite link. Well, here's the headline. Well, they have to do something out there in their downtime. And so even these completely isolated control systems that we know from the BP spill can have devastating, long-reaching, high-cost consequences even these can get infected. Pulling the plug is not an option. Add to that the fact that we now know, as of very recently, that there's been a concerted effort to hack and spy into diplomatic communication channels on the internet going back at least three years, something called Operation Red October. We don't know where it came from. And a more recent threat uncovered just this week a cyber spying program called Miniduke. And the cool part about Miniduke is that Miniduke receives all of its commands about who to attack and what to do through Twitter. So if you're reading tweets and you come across something like this, that's actually a set of commands to a hacker software program running on the internet. And as far as we know, Miniduke looks at over 4,000 different Twitter names to figure out what to do. And those names pop up and down, just like mushrooms on a spring morning. So bottom line, with all of this going on, are we at war? How would we know? 
Well, the Pentagon gave us some helpful guidance. You see, they told the Wall Street Journal, if you shut down our power grid, maybe we'll put a missile down one of your smokestacks. On one of the hacker boards that I monitor frequently, here was the immediate response. <laughs> so yes, the Pentagon is working on the response. We are trying to figure out what to do. We are hard at work. But perhaps the defense looks a little different. Perhaps the cyber guardians don't look at all like uniformed military. Perhaps we've been looking in the wrong direction. Now, this is not to say that we are not taking some steps. Most recently, this is one of the conclusions of an assessment of the cyber risk performed by Department of Defense. And this one actually is pretty depressing and chilling. Because their conclusion is that we have not, despite knowing about this threat for 20 years, ever conducted an end-to-end -end full assessment of the vulnerability of our nuclear systems, let alone all of the other systems that we depend upon in war fighting. Now the president is trying to do something about it. You may remember that last year Senator Lieberman introduced a cybersecurity bill in the Senate. And thanks to our friends at the United States Chamber of Commerce and their allies on the Republican side of the Senate, that bill was filibustered twice and went down in flames. So the president said we must take action and on the day of the State of the Union address gave us a cybersecurity executive order. It's a step in the right direction, but unfortunately, it's almost all aspirational. It's almost all cheerleading. And we need something, I think you'll believe, a little bit more than that. There are some voluntary frameworks being created for private sector and public sector cooperation, but there's no teeth in the executive order that can cause a private sector organization, even one considered critical infrastructure to implement any of this. What about internationally? What about a cybersecurity treaty? Well, there again, I'm not optimistic. Estonia was attacked ostensibly by non-governmental forces in Russia back about 10 years ago. Estonia is the most wired nation in the world and the entire country ground to a halt. And Estonia reached out under the NATO treaty, Article 5 says, the parties are agreed that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. Everybody agreed that this was a cyber attack. None of us agreed that it was armed, so we didn't respond. The Islamic countries have come to the UN and have argued that yes, we need a cyber war treaty, but that among the things they class as cyber war, are proselytizing messages transmitted over the internet. So it turns out that Pat Robertson is a cyber warrior. We're unlikely to agree to those limits on speech. China is unlikely, as we believe, to, in, to join in any multilateral effort. And last but not least, we and the Israelis may be so far ahead in offensive capability 
that we don't want to join a treaty either and hamstring ourselves. So, if I'm asked what's in the future, here it is. Cyber is here to stay. It is the fifth domain of war fighting, and any nation that expects to engage in conflict of any kind, war or politics by another means, will use cyber. Security technologies don't provide invulnerability. We have to figure out ways to be resilient, to survive and bounce back. And any defense doctrine that's based on MAD, that's based on deterrence, is based on if you hack us, we'll put a missile down your smokestack, is bound to fail. Because attributing the attacks is nearly impossible. Some takeaways, pretty simply. Cyber threats are just ordinary threats. They happen to use computers and networks. There are really only few differences among all of the different types of cyber threat. So when you hear about cyber crime, think cyber terrorism. When you hear about cyber terrorism, think cyber war. And when you hear about cyber espionage, think all of the above. Sun Tzu was right. Cyber threats are highly asymmetric. We depend almost to a fault on our computers and networks, and other countries and regions do not, and non-state actors certainly don't. So we have more to lose in this game. Retaliation, attribution, usually impossible. And remember that almost all of the computers and networks are in the private sector, and therefore the private sector is playing catch-up very badly. Well, that's all the good news for this morning, except that the government has obviously heard this, and a couple of miles from here last October, Secretary Panetta sounded the alarm yet again. You may remember that we heard about an electronic Pearl Harbor from John Henry back in 1999, and in 2012 we heard about a cyber Pearl Harbor. The press covered Panetta's speech, and as they usually do, they termed it a wake-up call. Only, here in the United States, we are really good at one thing. After a wake-up call, we roll over and we go back to sleep. Now, people often ask me, given all of this, if I need to have a laptop, if I need to travel with it, what should I do? How can I protect myself? And according to the United States Cyber Consequences Unit, here are the best practices if you absolutely must travel with an electronic device. I can boil all of this in small type down for you very simply. Before you travel, buy a new laptop. Put only the necessary programs on it. Carry an encrypted thumb drive with you in your underwear carrying all of your data. Never type a password while you're overseas. Use it from your thumb drive. And when you return home, take that laptop, place it very carefully in the middle of your driveway, and run over it five times with your car because it's been infected. So much for that. Well, I've enjoyed my time here with you this morning, and I really look forward to your questions if you have. A question, I invite it at the microphones up here. 
the ground rules as we use it at FPRI. If you have a question, ask it. If you have a statement, save it for the break. And uh, I will be glad to entertain any questions that you may have. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. are being manufactured in China and they were being embedded with code that's been used like back doors for information to be you know to, to uh, for espionage why do are we continuing to have most of our computer chips manufactured in China isn't it about could we eliminate a lot of this danger by bringing this back to the United States the answer is that we could eliminate a great deal of it by doing that, but that the cost and complexity of doing so is tremendous. It's not simply China where we manufacture chips. We also get them from Singapore, from Taiwan, from Korea, from Japan, a number of other countries. The question is, how can we audit the entire content of the chip design and then all of the software that runs on top of the chip? Writ large, this is the same phenomenon you may remember that IBM used to manufacture a computer called a ThinkPad. You can buy a ThinkPad today. That computer is manufactured by a company called Lenovo, a Chinese company. And immediately upon the sale of IBM's unit, the ThinkPad unit, to Lenovo, the Department of Defense said, okay, no more Lenovo computers. No, because we don't know what's in there. My position is they didn't know what was in there before. This was just a really good excuse. But doing this, managing to audit all of these systems, would cost us literally tens of billions of dollars. And it's not something that our private sector has been willing to undertake on our behalf to protect us, any more than Microsoft has been willing to engineer Windows to protect us from all of the malware that floats around with Windows. So could it be done? Yes. Will it be done? I think not. I think it will be worth the tens of billions of dollars because we're building this on a very shaky foundation and it's not just what's happening in 2013, what about 2113 if we don't spend that money? Now? I could not agree with you more and uh, to be trite about it, call your congressman. Okay, thank you. Yes, sir. You mentioned the, vul you mentioned the vulnerability of Microsoft. Is Apple any better? Yes, Apple is significantly better. Uh, the reason for that is that Apple is built on an open source framework that's been fully audited for security. The, the control that Apple exerts over its software and hardware systems is much tighter than the Microsoft world. There have been many fewer Apple systems out there, so they've not been as juicy a target. The Apple systems are designed for very high security applications and use a technique, a software technique called sandboxing that isolates each running program in its own little area of the computer. That's also used in Windows 8, by the way. The problem that Microsoft has is the problem of what's called backward compatibility. Backward compatibility is this idea that you should be able to run all your old software, you shouldn't have to buy anything new. So Microsoft has always made sure that you can run older software it's got some costs to it. And one of the costs is that you open yourself up to vulnerabilities like this. It's 
something that's not going to change until people just finally bite the bullet and say, I need to get an entirely new computer with entirely new software, at which point I tell them, you know, go with the system that's been more secure over time. Use a Linux computer or a Mac. Uh, or, for most of us, go with something like an iPad, where you don't have to worry about all of those risks. Now, as a consumer, how do we keep up to date on, on this whole issue? Uh, as a consumer, you keep up to date by making sure that you always update your software when the manufacturer of the software issues a security update, uh, that you only update from trusted known sites, that you don't let random software onto your computer, but most importantly, that you never ever click a link in an email. Never. Even if the link looks fine, it probably isn't. Even if that Nigerian prince is offering you that billion dollars, he's not. Just say no. Nancy was right. Yes, sir. Uh, current fiction is very hot on the subject with Threat Vector, vector by Classy, which I assume you may have read. Yes. How feasible is that scenario? We, we know the building. Uh, the, the scenarios that you see in fiction will become fact if they're not already within a year. Uh, all of the things that people can imagine are capable of being done unless we have real fail-safe links in place, and we presently don't. So everything that you've heard about, all of the things that Mark Bowden wrote about in Worm, everything that's been out there on the, the net talking about these security risks. But I also hasten to point out that the greatest security risk in any organization is you, is people. People don't want to invest their own effort and time in security. And so almost all of the insecurity that, re that comes about is because people do dumb things, because people are not inculcated in a culture of security. Security doesn't have to be onerous. It doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be passwords you can't possibly remember. Security can be a very different kind of thing if you have a culture of it. We unfortunately don't, and we're not likely to anytime soon. We're just frankly too lazy. But the, the fiction becomes true quicker than we can write new fiction. Sir. Um, are, are we doing the same thing in China that China is doing with us? Very good question. The answer is no. Um, the Chinese are doing what they're doing principally in an information gathering mode. That is, the Chinese gather all sorts of information, huge amounts of information that is completely public. And then they use massive numbers of people, of intelligence analysts, to piece together this information because we know that if you take enough public information and put it together in the right way, you end up with classified information. Tom Clancy figured this out when he was writing The Hunt for Red October. He worked entirely from magazines and newspaper sources, developed the ideas of this fantastic submarine drive, submitted the book to the Naval Institute Press, they gave it to DOD, DOD came back and said, we're classifying your manuscript. He said, but it's all from the public information. I have a whole file cabinet that I'll show you of where all of this stuff is public. And after a while, the White House interceded, he got permission to publish, but he went back to the Department of Defense and said, look, I'm a good American. 
if you'll just tell me what you object to in my book, even though it's approved now and it's all public, I'll take it out. You know what he was told? We can't tell you that, it's classified. <laughs> yes? You had said that um, our offensive capabilities in cyber war are, are well ahead. How does that lead compared to, say, our uh, lead in conventional military weapons? And why couldn't we retaliate against the Chinese when the evidence points strongly to the Chinese military? Our offensive lead in cyber is something that is going to be a force multiplier for our conventional warfare fighting. And so we will have a, a very good advantage using cyber and conventional because we now understand since Stuxnet that warfighting is no longer just as the military says putting steel on target. Now it's putting code on target and causing that kind of destruction. Now, some of the targets are not cyber-enabled. Some of them aren't on the internet. Some of them don't have computers that we can attack. And so we still need conventional force. And as to the second part of your question, why can't we retaliate? Well, because one of the big problems in cyber is something called spoofing. That is, it's very easy for me to do something like this. I can take my little iPhone here, and for 25 cents for today, I can buy a telephone number anywhere in the world and use it to call you. I can masquerade as the ex-pope. And so if you can spoof a telephone number, imagine that you can just as easily spoof that the attack that's actually being originated in Azerbaijan is coming from Shanghai. Or the one from Shanghai is actually coming from Moscow. And unraveling that in a timely fashion is the tough part. Because although we may eventually figure out the true source of the attack, we may not be all that sure. And in fact, we know that Bulgarian hackers have taken to writing some of their code in Chinese. And that the best Chinese hacker tools are actually translated Bulgarian tools. So the problem of attribution remains. It's very difficult. You say Apple is safer than Microsoft. If tomorrow everything that's on Microsoft in a critical area could be changed to Apple, forgetting cost at the moment, would that give us a, a time frame in which we, could, we would be safe? And would that time frame end when the bad guys started going after Apple? Uh, first, just changing your hardware and software doesn't change the users. And so the threats from the users, both from inadvertent clicking on bad emails and bad links, and from malicious insider threats would remain. So you can't go threat zero on this stuff. Would the systems be safer? Yes. And would they be safer until the bad guys turn to the Apple systems? Yes, there would be threats that emerged on the Apple systems. There have been a couple that have come about in the last six to eight months. But all of those threats, every single one of the threats in the Apple environment, has only worked if the user of the computer gave permission by clicking that OK button. So 
My answer to that is, unlike the Windows environment where we have what are called drive-by infections, you visit a website, boom, your computer is owned by the bad guy. Unlike that, in the Apple world, that simply doesn't happen, and it's not likely to happen because of this sandboxing that I talked about. Yeah, just a couple of follow-ons to the, the gentleman's question. How, how do you know that we're actually ahead? You know, it seems like a tough time <laughs> to really know. And then secondly, you know, part of the, um, the um, dialogue between the US, Chinese, and the Russians, I mean, how much do you think this topic is part of the dialogue? Or, and are there any bright lines drawn, say, if you, if you do this, we find out you've done that, maybe won't, you know, declare nuclear war on you, but we might do something else you might not like. Yes. Well, how do I know we're that far ahead? The answer is it's almost impossible to know it with any certainty because all of the, quote, good stuff is going on in the classified world. And uh, at least from my own research work, I work entirely in the unclass in the open source world. So it's what I can discover. It's what I take apart when I catch one of these worms and actually disassemble it and figure out what's going on inside it. Uh, and my feeling after talking with our former director of the NSA, former head of CIA, and General Yadlin is, yeah, at this point, we are pretty far ahead in terms of our ability to create real and not cyber damage. That is, it, to launch a cyber weapon that actually destroys stuff. In terms of our ability to snoop for information and so forth, I think we're also very advanced but the Chinese are doing a very, very good job using very simple tools. So the, the Chinese are generally using tools where they send an email that's very targeted, that looks legitimate, and they entice somebody to click on a link, and that opens up something on that computer, and then they steal the information. They do it to law firms a lot, because corporations have learned that their intellectual property, that they're negotiating documents and pricing documents and so forth, are something to be protected, but when they negotiate deals, they give all those documents to their lawyers, and lawyers are security lazy. So the law firms are getting hacked by the Chinese at a regular rate. Uh, it's just simply something that's going to continue. This is a cat and mouse game. This is a cyber arms race. Uh, one side will be ahead in certain respects and not in others, and it will continue. Ben. Since we can assume that the targets in this latest uh, publicized cyber attack from Shanghai were targets that were of a special interest to them that wouldn't have targeted them otherwise. Why in the, and, and they were in the private sector, why in the world can't we retaliate and also provide some deterrence by using trade policy both domestically and in our trade negotiations with China? To, not, I know this is not going to eliminate cyber attacks, but at least to punish them so that they, it seems to me, just as a, an outside observer, that this went on, we, just, we, know not, we know exactly where it came from, no doubt, it came from the military. Nothing is being done even publicly to deter this. I don't understand why they don't use trade negotiations and domestic trade policies to punish the, the private sector that was attacked unless they provide better safeguards. Well, I, I think you're, you're right. You, I'm sensing some frustration on your part, and I share that. The issue, however, is how solid is the attribution that you have for these attacks? Do you know who's being attacked and in what way and over what period of time can you respond quickly? And the last problem that you have is really one that says, 
you need to have a concerted policy as a nation about what you're going to do in response, and we don't have one of those. We have a do nothing, it's the private sector's business on the one hand, cheer-led by the, Department of by the uh, Chamber of Commerce, which says no regulations, all government regulations are bad, don't tell us how to run our business. And on the other hand, the Department of Defense saying, we have a nuclear threat and we ought to brandish it in order to deter cyber threat. And I'm afraid that that's just being ham-handed. Well, with that, Lawrence Yusick, thank you so much. You're welcome.